0: Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. Good morning. Well, we are in Mark chapter 13. We started two weeks ago, and I told you I've I've had a rash ever since. This chapter came along because there's some difficult things. It's the Olivet Discourse. It's in all three of this, uh, this, well, the Synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, they all describe this event. And I want to introduce you to a term that you just ought to keep in mind because what makes this text uh, interesting, let's see if uh, we can find it here. Okay. Oh, it's going to come up on, on the screen up there. There you go eschatology. So, eschatos. Eschaton is the is the last time. It's the time. That's the Greek word, and eschatology is the study of last things or the end times. So, uh, one of the things that Olivet discourse is makes sort of difficult is that it's talking about end times, and that's a difficult subject in the Scripture. Uh, I did see as I was doing some research that uh, in in two thousand in Ohio, and I actually have the article. Um, there was a pastor who was teaching on the end times, and uh, after the service, a guy uh, actually shot him and killed him. Because and there's literally the reasons in the article. is because he had a different theological view. Killed it, killed him. And it's you can look it up. You can see it's in Ohio. And I just I uh, just want to go ahead and say at the front end that I think that that's inappropriate in my mind. <laughs> Uh, I would prefer To agree to disagree On these things uh, And by the way You should know that there is room for disagreement I mean this could have been one of the reasons Why you don't see many preachers preaching On the Olivet Discourse Because it's just such a hornet's nest And uh, and There's lots of different views of course But and there's room for disagreement uh, you know, some of my favorite scholars disagree with each other on this. And, uh, and that's, that was hard for my mind to grasp. Because, you know, if you study scripture and you kind of want it, you, you you want the answer and you want to know what the answer is and you want everyone to agree with that, uh, agree with you on that answer. And of course, that can be problematic. So uh, not only was it hard for me to see my favorite scholars disagree with each other, it was hard for me to have to come to a place where I would disagree with one of my favorite scholars. And uh, you're going to have to do that too. And this is a place that I would tell you in eschatology, uh, we got to get better at this as a church anyway, is just study it hard, uh, hold it loose, hold it loose, you know, in some of these things that's not crystal clear. And what is clear, be committed to what is clear, be committed to. But what is but what is tough, okay? Hold loosely. I'll try to point those the differences out as we go. Um, so, those are things you can keep in mind. We do, however, need uh, an eschatological dimension to our faith. When I say eschatological, I'm talking about an end time dimension to how we follow Christ how we trust Him, how we see what's coming in the end. We need that in our lives. Uh, So, remember, Mark chapter 13, the people who were reading Mark 13 at the time, they know less than we knew. So whatever's in this text, God has something for us that's important here. The people who were reading it when Mark first wrote it and gave it to these Romans who were in persecution and struggling... God gave it to them for a reason, and we know more than they understood. For sure, we know more than they understood at that time. And yet that, the message was for them. They were to read it and understand it and apply it. We have to do the same thing. Uh, this text is not for you to predict the future. It's for you to be prepared for the future. Mark has had a theme. And it's about because following Christ is going to cost you. And there ought to be vindication. There ought to come a time, not only for your suffering, but Christ's suffering. What's the vindication of Christ's suffering? And for those of his followers, it's the second coming. And the way it's depicted in Mark chapter 13, you see very clearly there's vindication coming. What is not understood now, what is not seen now, uh, will be. And so the, the, the second coming, when you talk about it, it's either the best day Of your life or the worst day. Because that coming. Ends reality as we have known it. And you are either with him or you're not. That coming is either a coming of judgment. That's why it's called the day. It is called the day of the Lord. And you either on his side or you are judged. So. It's. It's a very important day, uh, whether you're a believer or not. It's an important day. Now, um, what we said last time when we were together, when you just look at Mark 13 as a whole, there's 16 chapters in the book. We said that Mark chapter 13 is sort of a bridge. It takes us from, you know, Jesus is in Jerusalem now. He comes to Jerusalem in chapter 11. And then he is, of course, crucified there. Uh, 14 and 15 show the trial and the passion and the crucifixion and then 16 the resurrection so what mark is doing is taking us over this bridge to christ and the bridge is the temple and what's going to happen to it and i told you last time that that temple represents what's going on here is jesus is saying you got to get over the temple and get to the to the cross because there is now a new temple This would have been revolutionary for those people in Jesus' day. You know, when you start to read over here and you see why they get mad at Jesus, you know the only reason they get mad at Jesus in Mark's account at the trial is because of what he says about the temple. See, this would have been overwhelming news. This guy is not only saying that if he destroys this temple in three days, he'll raise it back up, referring to his own body, which is what Jesus was saying. Jesus was basically saying, you don't need a physical temple anymore. I'm now the temple. You don't need a place where there's just spiritual activity going on in the temple anymore. Now I, you don't have to come to the temple to get to God. You come to me. I am the center of a new relationship with God. So this marked an incredibly important shift. From this physical location being the place where you interact with God, to Jesus being that place. Does everyone get that? Jesus is the new temple. So that's what's at the core of this. and, um, and in, So in chapter 13, and in verses 1 and 2, when they're, when they're leaving the temple, Jesus leaves the temple now. But, and it's the last time. He's never going back to it. It's a sort of an act of judgment, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they're, 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 one of the disciples is still enamored with the buildings. And Jesus is saying, do you see these great buildings? Here's your judgment. Not one of them is going to be said. It's Old Testament language for uh, devastation. This thing's done. It's obsolete. The activities in it, it had become a den of robbers. Remember what Jesus called it? It was a den of robbers. It was supposed to be a house of prayer. They've messed this thing up. It's going down. There's an interesting text in Luke. because something Luke does. And this is uh, interesting because Jesus alludes to this, according to Luke, before he ever arrives in, the, in, the, in Jerusalem. Remember, he's coming to Jerusalem in chapter 11 in Mark. In uh, Luke, when he gets there, remember what happens in the triumphal entry? This would have been the triumphal entry when you go and remember everyone's waving Hosanna like this. Listen to what happens. So here's Luke's version of Jesus entering Jerusalem. We saw it in Mark 11. Here's Luke's version. Luke says, He's coming down from the Mount of Olives. He's heading down. When you get to the Mount of Olives, you're heading down toward the city. So here they are coming real slow. Memories on the. Uh, donkey and they're coming down this way and everyone's screaming and Luke says they were, playing, they were saying blessed is the king, he comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest and then some of the Pharisees who are standing by literally say this according to Luke teacher, shut them up we're sick of hearing them screaming out your name shut your disciples up Here's what Jesus says to them. And, so, and he answered and said, I will tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Remember that verse? The stones will, comes in this context. The stones will cry out. Now, if you're listening to that, you go, okay, what a powerful statement. That, listen, something's going to praise me. And if animated human life doesn't do it, then the unanimated or inanimated life Rocks that don't have a life will actually come to life and praise me. That's the wonder of this moment. The identity of the king. Even the rocks see it, whether humans see it or not, the rocks know. And then you read a little bit further, and Jesus isn't done, because at this moment, Luke tells us something Jesus does that Mark doesn't tell us. Jesus' heartbreaks. His heart breaks because they don't see it. Because what they see is buildings. Teacher, look at these tremendous stones and buildings. And Jesus says this. When he approached, he saw the city and he wept over it. He cried because people couldn't see who he was. Saying, if you had known in this day, and this is not what he says here. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. You can't see it. And Israel didn't see it. And by the way, that's why the destruction of the temple happens. It's judgment on Israel. It's judgment on Israel. Because they rejected him. For the days shall come. Here's Luke. Jesus predicting even before this moment when Jesus actually says it in the Olivet Discourse. The day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That's an eschatological term. That's an in-time term used in the Old Testament and here's what it's saying. You kept looking for me to visit you. I finally came and you missed it. You missed it. And because you missed it, because it was hidden from your eyes, you will be judged for that. But notice the stones. You say, "What stones?" would cry out. It's the temple stones. And even though the stones don't actually cry out literally, they actually do cry out very loudly and scream. The fact that these stones will not... The destroyed temple will scream loudly. Don't put your trust in anything physical. Don't put your trust in a place... Don't put your trust in religion. Don't for one second put your trust in temple activity to relate to God anymore. These stones, these destroyed stones scream judgment to anyone who trusts anything, anything but Christ for salvation. Do you see this? Those stones do cry out. They scream loudly. So, That's what Jesus is saying. That's the import of this. And when this temple goes down, the thought of that for Israel was incredible. They associated so much of their faith to that temple that to destroy it left them literally starting over at zero religiously. And so when they hear that it's going to be destroyed, that to them means this must be the end of everything. And that's where this text gets a little crazy because now when they hear that Jesus is going to destroy all this temple, they are sitting on the Mount of Olives. And look, Peter, James, and John, these are the big three. These are the three that we've seen go off with Jesus a number of times in the gospel for special information. They got private data, but notice Andrew, Andrew slips in Andrew gets in on this and I've just laughed and chuckled at this the whole time because like if you're because these two are brothers you know Peter and Andrew are brothers because they're like the brothers hey you don't get to hey can you see Peter going hey Andrew you're out this isn't for you that's what my sons would have done no no this is just for the three of us but Andrew's like you can see Andrew going oh no if he's talking about the temple being church I'm in on this one I'm tired of you guys getting all the information if we're talking about the destruction of the temple I want in there too and I would imagine there's a few other disciples going uh hello. We would have liked a little bit of information because this is a big moment. And notice what he says. And here's verse four. Hey, listen, you got to answer the questions that come up in verse four in terms of how you're going to understand the rest of the chapter, sort of how you're going to lay the chapter out. And so we're going to have to get through this muddy water first uh, before we can understand what the what the rest of the chapter is saying to us. So here's where it's It sort of starts, tell us when, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that all these things are going to happen? So, when you understand what they're asking, and people disagree on what they're asking, that's why you disagree on how the chapter lays out. Does that, does that make it clear? Hey, well, what are they asking? Okay, well, some people believe they're just asking the two questions. When will that temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign that it's going to happen? That's, that's really all they're asking. Okay, well, the problem is, the odds are they're asking more than that. And we know it two ways. Number one, there is a... These things, plural... Okay, What things? It's only been one thing, and yet it seems like they understand more things are associated with this event. That's the point. So the plural suggests there's more things associated with this point. But there's there's more than that. Matthew 24, when Matthew is getting the question, Luke is very similar to Mark. But Matthew asks three questions. So we know according to Matthew, as he's standing there, they really wanted to know three things. Not only when the temple was going to be destroyed. But when are you coming back? When when are you coming again? And what will be the end of the age? When will be the end of the age? They wanted to know three things. Here's why. If you told the disciples the destruction of the temple was going to happen, they would assume that that means the end of the world is going to happen at the same time. You destroy the temple, that must mean God's coming back. And that's the end of the world. If you read Zechariah 12 through 14, you'll see what I'm talking about. Especially 14. You'll see. The end of the temple meant you must be coming back. So that's important. And you'll have to make a decision as you read the rest of this text. Uh, And I'll show you why. So this is important. They saw the destruction of the temple as a sort of a part of a complex of events that would include the second coming and the end of the world. That's what they saw. it. They saw him as the same thing. All right. So now let me show you this. This is this would be important for you to know. Mark was written probably somewhere around as early as probably as 55 A.D. Christ was crucified in 33 A.D. Just so you get a feel. Okay. Christ is crucified in AD 33. Uh Mark's probably written about 55 AD. You some scholars take it all the way to maybe uh the mid 60s uh, which would have been during Nero's reign because the remember the, the Mark's readers are going through persecution. So it becomes a matter of well, whose persecution is it? If you believe it was Nero's persecution, then you're going to date the book somewhere in this in this area to 64. So somewhere in this decade, Mark's written, I tend to think earlier, not during Nero's. So I tend to think earlier. Well, in 70 AD, which is a really important date for us, there's going to be a revolt on Israel against Rome. That happens in 66. And then in 66 AD, from there, there's a revolt, and then Titus eventually gets... Rome, Rome dominates it, they get to uh, A.D. 70 and Titus comes into Jerusalem and destroys the city and the temple. This is a majorly important date right here. It's going to happen within one or two decades of reading Mark 13. So if you are one of the readers of Mark and A.D. 70 rolls around, and you see them coming on the temple and destroying it, what are you thinking? <laughs> this is it! Okay, yeah, that's what you're doing. You're going, <laughs> this is happening. It's exactly what he said. Now, I'm going to tell you why that's important. I mean, it would have been incredible to have heard Jesus prof- make this prophecy and then to be in the, within a decade or two, depending on how you date, mark it happens this would have been a profound moment now here comes the question you have to answer if you're going to interpret the book and why it why you gotta uh why there's lots of differences on on the book okay so this is going to happen let's see how i say this let's see how do i say it in here So the question that we have to ask, yeah, A.D. 70 happens here. The disciples think, and the way, in my opinion, Mark 13 in the Olivet Discourse explains it, is that the end is going to happen right on this thing here. Uh, So I got A.D. 70 is going to happen. We see that coming. But then the end, it would look like the way the described, that the end happens not so much next to it. I was just trying to show two events but that this, they're described as one event in, in, in Mark. So you've got things that describe A.D. 70 and things that describe the very end. According to the way Mark is written, the way Jesus gives the prophecy, you do not know there's a gap between them. We don't know that. If you're living in A.D. 70, you think what you just read means the end too. And that's how Mark 13 is presented. It's how the Olivet Discourse presents it. It's not until after A.D. 70, and some of the things you read in here didn't happen, what would you do? You're going, wait a minute, I read Mark 13, and not everything he said that happened in A.D. 70 actually happened. So what would you think? You would think the end would have to come, what? A little (laughs) later. Thank you. You're with me. You see what I'm saying? Because of where we sit, we know, oh, he couldn't have been talking about both of them at the same time, actually, or it could, we wouldn't have known that until we realized that the end actually happened. Does that say the end? No, I don't think it does. Okay, so let me tell you what I'm saying as you approach this book. Here's the complicated thing that you've got to realize. Uh, Yeah, one of the complications is you'll have to read my writing as we go, too, and that's that stuff. All right, so here's what I'm arguing, is that there is a near event and a far event that get blended together. And so when you read in this, this chapter, you read them as one unity. They get blended. You don't know how to pull all the pieces apart to apply to which one. You don't know how to do that until the event's over. So the presentation of the event and what makes it hard to know, well, was that for AD 70 or was that for the end? It's complicated. So people approach the book basically three different ways, or this chapter three different ways. But what I'm arguing is he's showing this as a unified whole. So if you're going to uh, study this chapter... You're going to study it one of three ways. And let's use, uh, let's use this one here. All right, so let me give you the three views of this text. The first one is you believe that everything Mark says in chapter 13 in the Olivet Discourse in all three Gospels only applies to what happened just a few decades, a decade or two later. It all applies to A.D. 70. That's one view of the Olivet Discourse. What Jesus was describing all happened then. So what does that mean for you then? Well, I don't, it doesn't really apply to me. Wouldn't you do that? Sure you would. <laughs> You'd do it just like that too. I know you would do it just like that. All right, so that's what you would do. If, if, if that's it. So the only thing the church has to do where we're still sitting here is just preach the gospel. That's what we got to do till the end. Okay, but if um, but there's another view. Some people think that even though that happened a decade or so later, some people believe that it's only describing the end. So this this group here will will refer to as the past because they think it's already happened. They're actually called preterists. Okay, they see it as happened already. This group here sees the book only applying to the future, so they would be your futurists. Those are your futurists. They think that this is describing the end time tribulation, okay, only. So it does not apply in this area. It primarily focuses on Israel because clearly AD 70 focused on Israel. And the church's job here, well, most futurists, most futurists argue that a rapture occurs before all that happens. So again, the church is out. I'm not here for that. I don't want to read it. Okay? What, what does it apply to me? I'm going to be gone. Now, by the way, this is important. I didn't say it in the first I want to say it in the second. The view that I'm about to give you, you can still be pre-trib on the view that I'm about to give you, and it's the one that I hold. You don't have to be... Uh, you can still be pre-trib and hold this next view that I'm about to give you, which is basically it combines these into one, and it's talking about both. It's talking about both. All right. And when we talk about this, we're talking about something in prophecy called prophetic typology. What we would say double referent. Okay. And that looks like this. And this happens all through your Bible. Whether you understand it or not, you've read it. That means this event describes this event. But they're two different events. And I speak about them as if they are one unified blended event. But I'm describing actually two events. But I'm going to present them as if they're one. Is that understood? So that's... that's, Let me just tell you this if you're going. That's way too theological for church. Feel like I'm in an online class at Liberty. Well, here's the deal. Whenever you read Mark 13, since you're not one of Mark's readers, back in that day in A.D. 55... Every time you pick up that chapter and read it, every time you read Matthew 24 and 25, and every time you read Luke 21. You're making a decision how you interpret that text, whether you like it or not. And it's one of these three. And whether you knew it or not, I just told you what you're thinking and you didn't even know you were thinking it. That's a gift, people. That's a (laughs) gift, people. All right. So I actually am that this view and a lot of scholars hold it too, are, is the preterist, I won't even write it. It's the preterist, futurist view. And there's a few different ones with, with the, you know, that encompass both. There's some variations of it, not enough to talk about. So there's really just three. You either see it has already happened, you see it is as all, all gonna be future, or you see them together. And if you see them together, then you've got to work really hard to sort of piece everything out and say, well, when does that happen then? When does this happen there? And what does he mean by that? And if you don't see them this way, I think you make the mistake C.S. Lewis made in saying Jesus was wrong about one of the verses in here. And we'll get to that eventually, but I think you have to be able to see this. So we're talking about prophetic typology. That means one event mirrors another event. And I'll show you throughout this text how that happens in your Bible. Let me read you a, a simple quote. It's not really, it's really not a simple quote. I won't read the whole thing, but I think it's a great important thing to remember when talking about prophecy when you're talking about prophecy which is what we're going to be primarily dealing with okay the function of prophecy listen to he says this the function of prophecy is consequently not that of a detailed projection of the future it's not broken down real nicely so that you can tease out every little piece and you know everything that's going to happen it's not how prophecy functions even jesus himself in the text tells you what i don't know when this is going to happen. According to Jesus, because these two are presented as one, he could have seen God come back right after AD 70 because they both blended together into one event. That could have happened. So here's what he writes. The function of prophecy is consequently not that of a detailed projection of the future, but is the urgent insistence on the certainty of things to come. So he's critical about what is going. You're going to see things happen. But I can't be detailed all the way through here enough for you to just lay it all out perfectly on a chart. And then he writes this. This explains why at the end of the vista, the the perspective of of that detail is lacking. The prophet sees, and the prophet in this case, who's speaking? is Jesus. The prophet sees all kinds of events that will come, and he sees in all of them the coming of God. He doesn't know how to piece them out. AD 70 could have brought it, as far as he's concerned, in his presentation. But he cannot fix a date for the events. And he cannot distinguish all the phases in God's coming. To him, it is one great big reality. And that's what I'm, and That's what we're arguing. Okay? So those are your three views. You've got to come up with one. And again, no violence in disagreement. All right? No violence. Okay. So let me say... Um, and I just want to make this clear because I didn't in the last one. Uh, this does not mean you can't be pre-trib. You can hold this view of the Olivet Discourse. be pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, or, or uh, post-trib. You could be any one of those. And I want to, uh, another thing I just want to say is really important. When you're dealing with eschatology, let go of the tribulation. It's, it's not nearly as critical to eschatology as a whole as we tend to make it. We're just scared to death of trouble eschatology as a whole has so much to say about it. There's one little tiny verse about rapture in First Thessalonians 4, 4, and we're devastated by it, and now we can't, even, we can't even contemplate eschatology because we're worried about where to squeeze that. Don't worry about where to squeeze that yet. We'll get to that later. It's not critical to our discussion here. We need to see what Jesus is talking about first. Then we'll figure that out. But it's not critical. So... Uh, if that's what you're hung up on It's not the place to get hung up promise you Now uh, So here's what I want to do for you Giving you the basic That's the muddy water What I'll do now is walk you through a, every paragraph And I'll show you How those paragraphs apply to us today And how they fit into that theological structure That I'm, that I'm uh, uh, Presenting Okay, And I want to start. I'm just going to go through verse 8 today. That's all we're going to do. That's 5, 6, 7, and 8. You ready? Let's, let's, let's get into this. Okay. So, um, verse 5. Jesus began to say to them. Now we're going to try to understand what he's saying. Watch out that no one misleads you. And by the way, this is the critical statement right here at the front end. And it's what concerns Jesus. They want to know when. Jesus is more concerned about, will you be there when? Be you with me? I'm hoping you're still solid when this happens. That is a very important thing. And I'm going to show you how it's important. And in a couple of weeks, I'm going to, I'm going to dive into the seriousness of that. So evidently, when it comes to this topic, you can easily be what? Say it out loud. Okay, we got that. Many will come in my name saying I am he and they will. Here it is again. Mislead men. In other words, they're deceivers coming. I want you to notice this phrase. Because now I'm going to show you something that I don't intend for you to read. I just want you to see color. Can you see the red? Okay? There's four watch outs in this text. But only three things to watch out for. Two of them are the same. All right? There's three things to watch out for. The first watch out is to watch out for deceivers. Second watch out is to watch out for persecution. We're going to cover that one in two weeks all by itself. I'll show you why in a minute. That next, be careful, is the same as the first one. It's the same words, watch out, just translated, be careful, but it's actually watch out. And then watch out again, and you're watching out now for the second coming. So you're either watching out for deceivers, you're watching out for persecution, and who wouldn't be watching out for that? And then you're watching out for the second coming. So that's that's what's on the table. Then you see the see the four stay alerts at the end. Then there's this crescendo, and then there's ah ah, ah at the end. Stay alert four times within a few verses. And that's the second coming. So at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, when he comes back, you better have, I'm gonna say, your stuff together. You with me? All right. So that's that. That watch out is a big watch out. And the first watch out is don't get misled because it's easy to mislead people. Now, let's walk through this. So he says, There will be come, there's going to come people in my name. Now listen, Jesus has already come. In two days, he's dead. By the time whoever it is is coming to do this, he will have already come and died the first time. That means whoever's coming back next thinks they're the what? They're the second coming. No, I'm him and I'm bringing the kingdom. And here's what Jesus will say to you and what this passage will teach you very clearly. And that is this. When he comes back the second time, you won't have to wonder. And I'll let you read the end of the chapter. We're going to get there and have to figure out this apocalyptic cosmic language. But I promise there's stuff going on that will make it crystal clear who he is. So Jesus says, don't be misled by the guy that says he knows something that somebody else doesn't know or he is something that nobody else has been. Cuz that can't be true. All right? So, uh Now you're going to see how come it's so how come it's so easy to mislead. And then there's another question and I'm just going to throw this in right here like Jesus you're about to list a bunch of things and here they are let's let's read them first okay so you're going to get misled and how how are you going to get misled well you watch when you hear of wars and rumors of wars okay how many of you get a How many of you get a little scared when you hear wars and you're looking out there and you're a Christian so you know things are happening in the Middle East. You see Russia doing what they're doing. You see Syria doing what they're doing. You start to see Israel making moves. You see Iran and all this nuclear here, nuclear that. How many of you go, "Uh uh-oh, I think it's the end. How many of you have ever done that? I think that could be what's going on. Let me just see your hands. Be honest. I do it. I'm, I'm admitting it. I know you do it. And here's what Jesus says. Shut up. That's what he says. Don't you love that? Don't be alarmed. No, no, wait a minute. This is happening and then that happened. Under here. Uh Uh-uh. You want advice? Don't be alarmed. Wow. That's good. That's good advice. How many of you needed that advice? I needed that. And we're not even done. We're not even close. There's always wars. In fact, there have been wars since Jesus was saying this. Wars have happened after him and wars probably every day of your life. And there's certainly rumors of wars. There's always somebody ready to go to war. People will die. Okay, so what Jesus is describing is a very chaotic, scary time. But here comes the question is, why does he bring these up? Because <laughs> look what he says. Verse 7, by the way, is the critical interpretive piece of this first paragraph, which, which goes all the way to 13, but we're only going to go to verse eight because the last one in the list, he's going to spend five or six verses on. It's that important. We're going to spend six, whatever the last one of these things you're going to hear about is, and it's persecution. That's the most important one. So we got to, and, and and it tells you why Jesus would answer a question about when something's going to happen with a bunch of things that don't tell you when. Why would you do that? If these aren't the things that I ought to be alarmed about, why are you telling me them? Now, don't you think knowing Jesus the way we do, he's probably got a good reason for that? And you'll see it at the end in the next paragraph. Because they go together, but I'm breaking them up. So the first thing is, don't be alarmed. All in one verse, get this, don't be alarmed. Number two, these things must happen. This is a really important word in your New Testament. Little Greek word, three letters. It means must, it's a theological must. It's, it's what we call, a, it's the theological necessity. Jesus must be handed over and be crucified. It's going to happen. So Jesus is here saying, but here's the key within that. Because it's a divine necessity, God's in charge of it. God's in charge of it. So don't panic. He's in charge. You see all these things happen. Scares you to death and you wonder how. Wh- I, here's God saying, here's why I don't want you to be alarmed. I, I got this. There's chaos in the world. Everything seems to be sort of a loose. Everyone's a loose cannon out there. I know exactly what's going on, and I'm going to tell you one other thing that will really help you. And it's in this verse here, Jesus says, and that is, look, this is not the end. It's going to feel like it, but it isn't. So don't think it is. Three things in that one verse to help us with all of these things. And he's not even done mentioning them yet, but he can't help but squeeze that in. Nation's going to rise against nation. We hear that all the time. Kingdom's going to go against the kingdom. There will be earthquakes. In the last two years, last just two weeks ago in Ecuador, there, there's over 700 people dead already. And thousands and thousands of people affected. And a year ago to the day almost, April 25th of last year, 2015. Nepal, remember what happened there? 8,500 people dead. Earthquakes are happening. And, and there's famine. So these things are happening and they've been happening since Jesus said this. They're still happening in our day. So whatever he's describing here looks like something that's gotta happen for a really long time. Does everybody get that? But uh, see, if you were reading Mark back here, you wouldn't have known it was going to be a really long time. Because those things were probably happening in Jesus' day. And then the temple gets destroyed in AD 70. So, you're, well, this must be it. Turns out, no. Turns out those things are a picture. Or they sort of, not really a picture. Those things are just happening throughout the age. But Jesus says, here's how the deceivers trick you. You'll get scared. You know what happens to your faith? You know when you're really vulnerable spiritually? You get scared. You get scared and you're not really sure and your faith maybe is struggling a little bit and then someone comes along with the answer. By the way, that's what's going to happen at the end of the world anyway. The Antichrist is going to say he's got the answer and then everybody's going to go running to him because, hey, we need answers and we can't get them from anyone and there's no hope of getting them anytime soon. So you fall for it. Even though it goes against some of the grain of what you felt. You're going, look what's going on. There's so much chaos. I need something to grab onto. Well, don't grab onto a deceiver. Out of fear. Because you'll be wrecked. Your faith will be wrecked. So, hear this. Jesus is saying, your faith better be able to interpret reality. And handle chaos. Or it won't make it to the end. Do you hear that message? It won't make it to the end. You'll get suckered. So evidently, these signs that are leading up to this, and that's, by the way, the purpose of your chart. See the signs here? They lead up to the AD 70 event. And because the end gets stretched out, they've got to continue on until this end and will probably intensify here. But they've got to happen. But they do not signal the the end. They're just a part of the time in between. But they don't signal the end. Don't let them alarm you. We're past this and we're in here somewhere. And this would be the tribulation. So, according to your chart, what I'm saying is that they come in in AD 70, and we'll look at this as well. We'll see it in Mark. Uh, they destroy the destroy the city and the temple, and they're going to do that in the future. If there's a temple here, and the two events are similar, what has to be here? There has to be another temple to get desecrated. The scriptures tell us that. Okay. Daniel, 2 Thessalonians, you, you, it's crystal clear. This is, not, this is not hard stuff. We know that there's going to be. And then somewhere in the Beth- because that's the middle of the seven-year tribulation when that happens. The beginning of the seven-year tribulation, there's a covenant made with Israel. Halfway through it, he breaks that covenant and, and desecrates the temple by setting himself up as a uh, religious sort of savior figure. And then the last three and a half years, how do you know it's three and a half years? Uh, If you were just reading Mark, you would think, well, he's going to come as soon as that happens. But no, we know that that gets stretched out right here, gets stretched out three and a half years before the coming. Because Revelation tells us it does. So we we get that picture later. You don't have it now. You don't see a tribulation seven-year thing going on in the Olivet Discourse yet. That we got to go import other New Testament books into that to get this structure right here. But it's a clear structure. It's not hard to see. So that means you got this whole picture going on. And these things are happening leading up to it. But we're not in it and they don't signal the time of the end. That's what Jesus is saying. Now... We'll come back to that chart and do some stuff with it later, but I just wanted you to see a couple things there. Okay, so these things must happen. The end is not yet. Don't panic. Nations are going to rise up against nations. There's going to be earthquakes and famines. And then look at this line. Here's our last verse. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Birth pains is another eschatological picture that the Old Testament used to describe uh, The picture of the end coming. And the reason they use that birth is because pregnancy and birth is the beautiful picture for eschatology. Because it says there's a person hidden who is eventually going to what? Up here. Isn't that what the picture is? Well, that's what this is about. So this is the perfect picture, the perfect illustration of what's going on. It's this whole imagery of the language of the end in its its pregnancy picture. You say, how does that help us here? Okay, because all the things he's describing here, they're just the beginning of birth pains. How many of you who were pregnant before and have given birth, uh, maybe you've had multiple kids, you ever went to the hospital and it was sort of a a false alarm? All right, we, we had to drive all the way to Medical City for the false alarm. A little too far. We were hoping this was going to happen. It didn't happen. And so they sent us home. And see, Jesus is kind of doing that to those of us who want to just constantly look at the end and see when it's going to happen. And constantly trying to predict by things that are happening in history when it's happening. Jesus is saying, uh, go home. It's not yet. These are just the beginning of birth pains. The beginning of birth pains. You'll get some contractions and some birth pains. But they don't signal that the baby's coming yet. And any woman who's been pregnant knows there's some contractions that flat signal he's coming. And some that don't. Especially if you've had multiple births. Okay? But what Jesus is trying to say is it's going to be a long labor. Now, the readers of Mark didn't know how long it was going to be. It's been 2,000 years. That's a heck of a pregnancy. All right, Gail was in labor for 36 hours with Anthony. The boy just didn't want to come out. Thirty-six hours, and he's having a hard time leaving the house now too. And he's, tra- <laughs> I mean, it's he just it's just his thing. But the whole point of this picture is here is the first point of the picture. It's it, it's hope. Yes, there's some contractions, and then they they're going to get bad. It's going to be bad. And when Gail first told me she was pregnant with Anthony, you know what I did? I cried, not out of joy, because I knew what it would mean. And that means, here's what Mark is saying, all reality is pregnant with the the reality that Jesus is coming one day and hope is coming. And you might cry at the beginning when you come to know Jesus, because to follow him is going to cost you something. It's going to be painful. It's going to be a long labor. But if you stay faithful, you get to the end. And then when that baby was born, I can tell you, and every one of my children that were born, you get emotionally overwhelmed. I've lost it in all of them. And I didn't realize how, how a heart could love until they were born. And that's what is going on here. It's going to be a tough road, but you've got to be able to hang in there and see the hope. And so here's the question of this text today so far. Yeah, a lot of rough things are going to happen. Sort of describe the chaos of the world. You need to have a faith that, 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 that can handle that chaos. And the only way you can have it is you've got a hope that he's coming back one day to settle all this mess. If you don't have that hope and you're trusting in something else like a temple, that's going to be crushed and destroyed, you better put your faith in the person who's coming back, who came once and is coming back. And then the second thing, and I'll just say this, Again, why would Jesus bring these things up if they're not describing the very end? Because he's concerned that you get to the end. There's one more of these birth pains. They come in verses 9 through 13. The last one in this list is persecution. And... It's going to cover that much. So which one do you think is the most important in the list if five verses are given to it? That one. And in that one comes the explanation of why Jesus would give you signs that don't tell you when. And I'll leave you with this thought. Not only is your hope better be in Christ in the future, but it's that hope that will get you to the end. Because here's the thing. And we see it in the misleading. Don't be deceived. Here's the question. Do you have the kind of faith that will last to the end? So we all have faith and we can all look at the past and say, I remember when. It's not about the past. It's all about now. We love to import into somebody's life what they did in the beginning years ago. They may be off on some weird road now, but here's the thing. According to this text, it matters if you make it to the end. What kind of faith goes all the way to the end? Doesn't just start out well. And by the way, reread Mark 4, same image. Believed for a little while, then what happened? Anybody know anybody like that? Bet you do. Here's the question on the table. How do I know I have the kind of faith that will get me all the way to the end, and there 's one level and this is just this is just preacher honesty, this is just Bible honesty, forget preacher you won 't really know till when till you get there, but there are some things you can do and see and understand it 's far more important what you 're doing today with your faith than what you did 15 years ago do you hear me on that hillside you want to see watch out stay alert you don't get to go take a hiatus you don't get to let your guard down how do you have the kind of faith that doesn't let your guard down till the end in the middle of chaos that's the question and i want to spend an entire time on it uh and so that's what we got to do um all right. Father, wow. We love you. We love your word. We pray that every person in this room has the hope that we are talking about, that it's in you and the person of Christ. You've come once and now the, the reality is uh, pregnant with the truth that you will be here, that you will be revealed. And when you come back, you will, you will be the king that everyone must surrender and submit to. I pray we have that hope. And secondly, for those of us who trust you now, who believe you now, I pray that we would look at our faith right now and ask ourselves, Is we have the kind of faith that'll last? And Father, we look forward to you showing us what that kind of faith looks like. In Jesus' name, amen.